TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Odette Ezer about how his limitations as a musician and poet led to his extraordinary adventures in typography. We trained to ask, how does this type look? And I claim that what we really have to ask is, how does this type behave? Here's Debbie Millman. Is typography design or art? Nothing provokes that question more insistently than the work of Oded Ezer, who calls himself a typographic experimentalist. Ezer's experiments include implanting typographic information into fictional spermatozoa. In another project, he bound, gagged, and racked Latin and Hebrew letters as if to torture them into telling us the truth about who they really are. Ezer has also created installations and videos, and he recently collaborated with novelist Jonathan Safran Foer on a new Haggadah. He lives in Israel, but he's currently artist-in-residence at the Rhode Island School of Design. He's here in New York to talk about the art and design of typography and some of his recent projects. Oded Ezer, welcome to Design Matters. Hello. So, Oded, I saw a video of a talk you presented at Design Indaba, wherein you introduced yourself in the following way. My name is Oded Ezer, and I am a typoholic. So what does that mean, being a typoholic? Well, I can speak with someone on the street and don't even listen to what he has to say, but imagine his words as letters flying in the air. Things like that. I mean, it happens to me sometimes. Are you doing it right now? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> I was going to then ask you, what typeface is it? <laughs> what are the words coming out looking like? Paola Antonelli, curator of design and architecture at the Museum of Modern Art, calls you a super typographer and design fiction hero. Well, she exaggerates. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is that more accurate than a typoholic? Or what is, what is a design fiction hero? I mean, some of my work is commercial, of course. Uh, the typefaces I design, especially Hebrew typefaces. But 
A very big part of my work is these um, projects where I imagine possible context, shall I say it like that. And then I put myself in a position where I have to design typography for these contexts. As if I write a story to myself and then I have to design the environment for this story. So the type of story that you're designing an environment for is completely self-generated. Both the construct, the scenario, the fixtures, and the typography that all expresses this fictional reality that you're creating. Exactly. Okay, we're going to get back to that. Okay. <laughs> you grew up in Ramat Gan, a typical Israeli city, as you call it, in the 70s. And you state, I remember that as a child, I looked around and everything seemed so gray, although it was a very sunny place. It probably wasn't really gray. That was just my experience of the city. That feeling of mediocrity was disappointing. So as a child... I always daydreamed that something would happen to change the look of the letters on the street signs, the look of the buildings, and the way people dressed. Another kind of frustration was with words, and that is something that anyone who deals with the philosophy of language feels. It's the problem that words only name objects, but they do not include them. The word chair is just a general symbol that has nothing to do with a real chair. In a way, I felt this was wrong because it removed a very sensual part from our language. Beautifully written, wonderful, wonderful sort of ideas and philosophy. But as I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week since you said, yes, you would be on Design Matters, I wondered if we did have a language typographic language that had more of an ability to see and experience, wouldn't that require one universal language? This is a nice thought. I always assume that there is a deeper meaning to things. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, but the, the basic feel is like when we deal with uh, graphic design and typography, most of the times, we just serve the real thing. I'm kind of frustrated of that uh, fact. I would like to create what I call the real thing, but using typography, that usually we use it only to serve the real thing. So it might be that I ask too much of the profession, in a way. Instead of just choosing the right typeface, I would like to make people not only read it, but feel it and feel it deeply. So I think in this sense, that's generally why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to give the words itself the sense that we have from objects, that we have from uh, certain situations. So... Let's go back in time a little bit. Um, I read that in high school you played the guitar and you had a rock band with your friends. That's right. Um, why did you decide not to go into music? Well, I felt I wasn't um, talented enough in this field. How do you to, know when you're talented enough? I don't know. I felt it. But to be more precise, I had these ideas that I simply couldn't play. I couldn't make them real 
maybe because I wasn't as good with my hands playing the guitar as my head run. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, oh, I have much more in my head than can be played by myself. So uh, then I moved to writing poetry. And I wrote poetry. And it was better, much better. But again, I had some... crazy things in my head and might be that my talent was not enough in order to write it properly on the on the paper now I understand that you were writing poetry uh, during the time you were in the military that's right and so I was wondering what being in the armed forces in Israel and how that <laughs> works with poetry I just couldn't imagine you sitting there in your uniform and having spent a lot of time in Israel I sort of know I see that visual of you in your uniform with the rifle and sort of writing poetry and it's yeah, a little uh, bit incongruous well I was really bad bad soldier I think. <laughs> and and yes that's what I did I actually in between uh, uh, yeah I found myself with paper and trying to write and I wrote and it was uh, for for short time it, I was even uh, quite successful they printed my poems uh, in magazines and newspapers they even wanted to to publish a book of my poems but I thought they are not good enough so I so once again once again self-analysis of what is good and what isn't enough well it, it it was just a feeling that there might be another medium that I can show what I have in my head better that's all uh, and then I got wounded in the army and they asked me so now what what do you want to do and you know in the Israeli army there are like bands playing music for their soldiers so I said do you have a place for somebody to design the stage for these bands they said yes so that's what I did for the rest of my service uh, so that was my first steps as a designer so are you saying that we have your military training to thank for unleashing your typographic genius in a way <laughs> <laughs> so when did you if you if you didn't feel like in high school you were talented enough to become a musician and then later you weren't talented enough to become you A poet, what gave you the confidence to go to design school with the intention to become a designer? I think that I was looking for the right medium for myself. I knew that I have something to say. I didn't know exactly how I'm going to do that. So it was a kind of trial and error. And when I was in the Academy for Art and Design, I felt suddenly everything came to its place, you know. I felt one with what I wanted to say. I read that you've said that you didn't have the guts to say exactly what you wanted to say when you were in school because you were not as brave as you are today. And that as a student, you wanted to understand everything and you wanted to be praised for understanding everything. Um, so what changed? When did that courage first manifest? Well, as I said, it was a process. So when I was in school, I was careful with my teacher and I was supplying what they expected from me. But after I finished school, I felt, okay, now I paid my duties, like, and I can start doing whatever I like. And it was a great release. It took me like two years after my school finished to realize that I'm, I'm completely free now. I can do whatever I want. It was there where I started to understand how powerful it is to put out the things that you have in your mind and to do it fearless, relatively fearless. 
And when you were in school, were you primarily working with Hebrew letter forms? Both. And it's really interesting because I have this history of my own in Israel. Um, when I was trying to learn Hebrew, I found it very, very difficult uh, because you don't really have the same ability to phonetically sound things out and have the visual cues of just letters to help you read. And so you don't know if what you're looking at is danger or welcome. And my Israeli friends at the time were giving me a hard time because they said that compared to, say, English, where you have millions and millions and millions of words, in Hebrew, you only have about 70,000 words. And so I was wondering if that brevity of language had any impact in the way that you approached your experimental typography projects. Actually, I work in, in so many languages, yes. and it doesn't really matter if I deal with uh, Hebrew letters, Latin letters, Arabic, Japanese, whatever. The true aim is to understand what can be done with typographic letter forms and to develop this as far as possible. Uh, most of the time it was easier in Hebrew just because I know the language, but then I discovered that I can move really easily between languages. So the principle of typography is universal as I see it. In what way? What are, what are, the univ what are some of the universal principles of typography? All letters are shapes. It's, it's a series of signs. The question is, when you read a word, and it doesn't matter in which language, do you feel what you read or do you just read it? That's the question. And the questions I have is, can you merge typography with other fields? Can you combine typography and biotechnology? Can you combine typography and architecture? Can you combine typography and music, philosophy, and so on? These are the questions I ask, and it doesn't really have to do with certain specific language. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you approach your experimental work? I, I read that you always start with traditional letter forms. Different projects start in different ways, usually. But uh, most of the time, I tell myself a story. I, I'll give one example, just Please. like the Typembria movie I did as a homage for Herb Lubalin's uh, uh, Mother and Child logo. So it all started with a story I told myself. Lubalin died uh, years ago, but I really wanted to meet him. So I invented this story that we meet and we have a coffee together and we talk to each other. And since he knows I'm, I'm working in new media now, he says, oh, I wonder what, what can be done with my logo using video. So it's, it's going like that. It's a conversation between us. And I imagined as if he, he asked me or briefed me to do something with his logo. So, so then I had to do it because Lubalin asked, you know. So, so that, that was the starting point of the uh, video that I called Typembria later. Is that also the inspiration behind I Heart Milton Glaser? Uh, yeah, well, I never m met Milton. I admire him as, like, every, everyone. <laughs> um, and I have this side of me that really wants to say thank you 
to my heroes. Uh, it, it can be graphic designers, it can be poets, writers, uh, musicians, and so on. Uh, one of them is, of course, uh, Milton Glaser. And I thought the I Love New York logo is so, so simple that even if I mess with it, it will be still recognizable. So I decided that this is a nice way to say thank you to him. Do you know if he's ever seen it or did you send it to him? I have no idea. Oh, he should see it. That's for sure. Um, so two years after you graduated, you moved around a little bit. You had a bunch of different jobs and then you decided to go off on your own. And you very, very quickly made a decision about having client work and having your what you called NPIs, nonprofit items, and right. you marked those experimental works NPI for nonprofit items. Right. At first, though, it seemed from the research that I did and from reading your marvelous, marvelous book, A Typographer's Guide to the Galaxy, that you were unhappy having to even have clients at all, that you felt that you didn't want to subordinate your ideas to their demands. I think that was the quote. Well, I live in a country where there are not a lot of people living. It's like uh, 7 million people. Uh, 7 million people speaking 70,000 words. Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so naturally, uh, the audience is very small. That means that if you do a mistake, you lose your money. You have simply not enough people to buy your product. So I felt extremely limited by this fact. I, I felt that if I have to obey this, I will reduce my creative possibilities. So I decided in order not to fight my clients or to fight myself, actually, to divide myself into two. The, the process was like that. I, I used to work the whole day on commercial stuff. And then I went to sleep one hour. And then I w woke up and started the, what I call the real work. And since I was really naive, and still is, uh, I am a, a little bit, so I did it in a, in a very childish way. So I didn't limit myself. I just, I played with ideas, and uh, generally I played. And it was uh, a real start, because uh, later on, things merged. And now what happens is that my clients ask me, to play. So in this sense, I, I am thankful. In your book, A Typographer's Guide to the Galaxy, you're asked about your philosophy about design. And rather than just ask you what your philosophy about design is, I wanted to read your answer because it's so perfect. And then maybe talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. That's perfect. Okay. So you, you say, my basic philosophies are very simple. Design should be fun, not tiring. Try to treat any problem as a challenge. Daydream. Sketch. Never throw away any sketch or piece of work, no matter how stupid and pathetic it is. Bad ideas now can be brilliant solutions in the future. Design should be easy to produce. If something becomes too complicated, simply avoid that direction. Use simple and cheap materials and techniques. Amuse yourself. Always listen to other people Never let anyone else decide for you. Unless you have a real reason, work with black and white only. Unless you have a real reason, work on your own. Don't look at graphic design books for inspiration when you are short of new ideas. Instead, 
take a long walk or meditate. Adopt other people's methodologies, not their style. Be obsessive. Be generous. Be as honest as you possibly can. I think that's about the most perfect design philosophy I've ever read. (laughs) That's why I wanted to read it out loud. I really thought it was important that my listeners, I think especially, will love this. So let's just go through a few of these because I want to really, really push you to explain why you believe certain things. So use simple and cheap materials and techniques. I think that Stefan Sagmeister would absolutely disagree with you. So why do you think that using simple and cheap materials and techniques is the way to go? Well, one of the techniques not to do things is to complicate it. And when you say, oh, I wish I could do this and that, but I don't have the materials to do that. This is a wonderful technique uh, not to do the thing. And creativity can be done with any material possible. So in this way, I think I would like to encourage other people and myself as well to use whatever you find in order to say something. And if you don't find certain material, don't stop because of that. Just try to think about another material that is easier to find. It reminded me of one of the sort of old adages about ideas, that an idea should be able to work as well on a scribbled on a paper napkin as it does in full sort of regalia. Well, um, I, do, I don't, I, I don't uh, agree with that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I understand where it comes from. The, the, the idea of, of not complicating thing, uh, I don't want to stop because an outside reasons. You see what I mean? That's where I actually think your work straddles design and art in as much as you're not necessarily solving a problem other than what else can we do with nails or what else can we do with ashes? Or what else can we do with type? Or what else can we do with space, yeah. right? But I, I think it's ingenious. It's just extraordinary to be able to think that you can take something so benign and ubiquitous as a match as matchsticks and create this alphabet or library or universe. Do you have a preference for the more what I'll call organic projects that you do where you're creating something that's already been made into something else like matchsticks or nails or ashes versus the pieces that are more scientific, the spermatozoa, for example. Right. Uh, Well, these are all examples of different directions that I take I no longer work with materials, for instance. Now I work on on completely other ideas. Uh, I have this new idea that I call uh, typotherapy, (laughs) that I I want to combine typography and and therapy. Oh, wow. Uh, And I'm working now on some ideas as as for how to do it. And I'm really serious about this. I mean, it's, it's not going to be an experimental project, but a real one. It will take me some time. I'm, I, I'm consulting with uh, psychologists and people who are uh, therapists and people like that in order to to find out. I really, I truly believe in a therapeutic aspect of typography. And so it doesn't have to do always with materials, but, but with ideas. And you, you talk about being fascinated by the second level of typography, the power of typography. And it seems like 
you might be talking about semiotics a little bit, or maybe you're going in this sort of linguistic Jacques Derrida sort of direction. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by the second level. Is it what something means, what something stands for, what something represents? Well, uh, by saying the second level of typography, I mean that every word has its uh, direct meaning and the things we don't say. And my work, as I see it, is to reveal this to the people. So do you think that if you're able to create a more direct way of communicating via typography, that that can be helpful to people that might have a problem communicating? Is that part of what you mean by the the therapeutic nature of what you're doing? Exactly, exactly. Well, what I really want to do now is to try to use what I know already in order to help others. So, and this is completely new for me. Uh, and 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 hap- I'm happy to get to this point where I, I can look out outside of myself and not only inside in myself. In your book, The Typographer's Guide to the Galaxy, you ask some rhetorical questions. You put you put them out at the beginning of some of the chapters, and sometimes you answer them directly, and sometimes you use different um, examples to articulate an answer, visual examples. And so I want to ask you some of these questions. I think they're really fascinating questions, whether they have to do with typography or not. Um, My favorite question that you ask in the entire book is, how can I make type behave in a way that it speaks about time? And so I'm wondering if you could answer that question. Well, it would take me some time to answer this question. <laughs> of course it would. <laughs> uh, I, I think what is really impo- important about this question is the question itself. I mean, we trained as graphic designers and typographers. We trained to ask, how does this type look? And I claim that what we really have to ask is, how does this type behave? And this is a completely different question. Uh, when you ask it like that, you understand that you can activate type just like a person that sits in front of you. And I hope that by doing this, we, we can achieve a higher level of communication. I think that one of the most successful ways that you've done that is in your tortured letters experiment. Those that are listening that might not have seen them, first of all, I urge you to look, um, odedezer.com, and you can see his tortured letters experimental uh, typography. But I literally felt a visceral sense of fear, a little bit of disgust in seeing these sort of tortured pieces of typography, but not so much because they were just pieces of typography, but mostly because they were bandaged in a way that made it seem as if they were amputated in some way. There's this sense that something is is fundamentally broken and that it has been tortured and not just hurt by accident. Right. How do you do something like that? <laughs> How do you come up with this? Well, I, I didn't really think when I, when I do these things. I mean, uh, I just let myself play. So in this particular project, I, it was a really short, by the way, really short project. I mean, it took only one day 
and because it was a series of improvisations. And uh, I just had my photographer with me. He said, oh, don't move. Just leave it like that. I will sh- shoot it and then you can, can continue. And that's how we worked. It was a really a fluent process. And I, I try not to think too much. How old were you when you did the project, Odette? Well, it was a few years ago. All right. So late 30s, uh, mid 30s. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so as, Paul, as Paula Cher would say, it took you 38 years in one day, not just one day. Exactly. <laughs> because it's everything that you brought to that day to create that, exactly. that experience. I agree. So a couple of other questions from the book. Um, you ask the question, how do letters look when they are happy? How do they look when they are shy. How do letters look when they're shy? Well, again, I have to think about it. (laughs) I mean, uh, well, I assume that if 10 designers will ask this question, the same question, uh, you will get 10 different answers. And that's how it should be. The importance is to ask this question rather than to answer. Of course, the answer will be very, very interesting. But I just wanted to explain my way of thinking about type. Sperm, DNA, and type. Um, You ask a question in your book, um, or you actually state, I love to combine typography and other fields in order to find out what else can be done with letters. And so your sperm, DNA, and type, typosperma, is that correct? Typosperma. (laughs) Typosperma. How did you actually construct the letters? Because they felt very three-dimensional. Right. Well, it started with the two-dimensional drawings. Yes. And uh, the first few drawings were not very good because I felt like I'm forcing the letters on the sperm. And I didn't want that. I wanted to create a new creature. Uh, So then I uh, slowly, slowly understood that if I... Don't use the whole letter part. Like I use only part of the letter and I use only part of the sperm and together I form new creature, then it looks convincing. And also I have this uh, excuse that the sperms are not developed yet. So you can have half-ready letter sperm. So you have mutated letters and beings. One of your more recent projects is a piece that was inspired by Memory Palace, a popular graphic novel by Hari Kunzru. I read that you actually literally hungered for something different. You were hungering for something different. So you shot a video of yourself uh, ravenously devouring bits of edible typography, spelling out key concepts in the novel. It's not entirely clear in the movie, in the video, that you've made these letter forms from seaweed. It actually looks like you're eating something that actually isn't really edible. I see this as conceptual, as I see Sagmeister's Cranbrook poster, where he carves his the information about his lecture into his body. Um, and here you are engulfing, eating this information, and and you eat it in a way wherein it's not entirely clear to the viewer if your mouth or tongue is bleeding while you're eating. And it feels as if this is your attempt, and in some ways as Sagmeister's as well, to sort of become one with 
graphic design, that you are now the canvas in which the design is either happening or containing. Can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to eat the typography and what made it seem as if it might actually be painful? The idea behind those eight different videos that I created for the V&A exhibition was to try to find other ways of reading type and content. So one of the ways was eating the types. Imagine to yourself that you are introduced to typography, but you don't know what is it, actually. So if if you are really a curious person, you will try different things. And one of the things that I thought I can try to read is by trying to taste it and to eat it and to try to, to have it in my body and maybe in this way I can read the, the text. Of course you can't, but it was uh, an honest attempt. I dealt with other techniques of reading text, just like burning text, burning the actual letters, not the book, but the letters, tearing it apart, and other very naive attempts to understand what's going on there. It's one of your most powerful pieces. Thank you. All the way on the other end of the spectrum is the recent project that you did with Nathan Englander and Jonathan Saffron Foer, which was a design of the new American Haggadah. What was it like to redesign a Haggadah? That's like it's like one notch away from the Bible. <laughs> Slightly frightening. <laughs> I mean that that's a big project. How do you even begin to to design a holy book? Well, the starting point was absolutely not to illustrate the text. Usually, these kind of books have a lots of illustrations. As if you don't really believe in the in the power right. of the text itself. It's like itself. a fairy tale, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that uh, it's weird. It's weird because the text is extremely powerful. And I really wanted to show this power. And I used the text even on the cover because I thought the text itself is the star of the book. And uh, I went back in time and investigated what they used to do and uh, took uh, inspiration, but interpreted in other techniques. So I moved really quickly between years and techniques. So in every other spread, I used different kind of type and different kind of technique. It took me a year to complete this book. While you were working on the book, did you ever begin to contemplate the content and, and think about what it means today and how relevant it may or may not still be? Well, I'm used to this text so much that I, I think I'm not questioning it anymore. It's like it's part of, of me. So I know it so well. I didn't even have to read it. Unlike other projects that you have to do research. I mean, you, you read it. Every year, oh, absolutely, you, you know it by yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it by heart, absolutely. So that gave me freedom, actually, to 
think, how can I use this text in order to show the beauty of Hebrew throughout 3,000 years? And But I didn't want to do it uh, in a direct way. I wanted to do it uh, in my way. So it was every day I went to my studio and I chose different kind of material, different kind of, of, of color. Sometimes I used pencils. Sometimes I used, uh, I, I photographed some stuff, you know, everything that I could put my hands on. And if I didn't have anything in the studio, I went down and picked a stone, you know. So uh, in this sense, it was great fun. And in working with Jonathan and Nathan, I understand you did a lot of the work via Skype and email. What was that like, the three of you sort of working to redesign this this ancient text? I can say that I don't think that uh, either Jonathan or Nathan did something like that before. Uh, and for me also, it was the first time ever that I designed a book, the whole book. I don't mean just the, the cover. So we came fresh to the whole project. And I think that uh, there was a great teamwork. I felt like Jonathan is, is designing the book no less than I do. I was inspired by the ideas that he brought. And I think it was uh, a wonderful conversation between us. The last question I want to ask you is about a quote that I read that you said, my intuition tells me that now it is time to go ahead into the future to 20 or even 50 years from now, and to run away from what has become mainstream. So what do you see as mainstream and what do you want to run away from and to? Well, thinking about how the world will look like in 50 or 100 years from now, we might not need typography as we need it today. The The world goes to the direction where people will simply hear what we used to read now. Uh, you will come into your house and the, the walls will talk to you and you will see videos or holograms instead of reading books. So I think that it's not that typography will disappear, but we will have less and less the need in type. So I'm trying to find other uses for type in the future. And this is how I got, by the way, to the idea of typotherapy. And I think that I'm continuing thinking about this. And I might find other uses for typography in the future. So we'll see. Oh, Dead, thank you so much for you, being Deb. on the show today. I look forward to seeing how you redesign the future. There are marvelous, marvelous experimental projects to look at on Oded's website, odedezer.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much, Debbie. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.